No new beer labels. Yeah. This is bullshit. More stuff like this could be coming. I know. I don't know. It's got great hands. We sat by with Ooh. Yeah. We sat by with children in concentration camps and and like people missing paychecks, but I need more beer. I need more beer labels that feel good in my hand. It's so easy. I just like the idea that like the other stuff you're just like totally okay with. You're like, yeah, whatever. But then beer labels are like, no! <laughs> yeah. This is the one thing I don't like! Yeah. I was really looking forward to the new packaging on this fucking IPA. <laughs> but it's the same one as last year. <laughs> this is out of season. I can't put this on my Instagram. This is so 2018. I've <laughs> moved past that year. We're ready to bury that year. <laughs> True. So welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is going to be a fun one, uh, but to kick it off, I uh, wanted to give a shout out to some other awesome, independent, listener-supported podcasts, Curiosity and Focus. Um, if you're curious about like literally anything, Daniel Kwan uh, has you covered. It's a really great show, super informative. Uh, Women in Archaeology, as always, uh, if you're listening to this show, you have probably heard Kirsten Lopez, our uh, co-host. Uh, she's also on the Women in Archaeology podcast, and they share some much-needed uh, feminist perspectives on issues in archaeology. you got to check them out. And Archie Fantasies, the Mythbusters of Archaeology, uh, super awesome show. Go check it out. And the Transect, our friends up in Canada, covering uh, heritage management and CRM issues uh, up in Canada. Super awesome folks. And a really fun show to listen to as well. Um, also, a huge thank you to all the Patreon supporters for helping us reach our first support goal. Um, now we have this Airstream covered, and uh, the upload fees for the podcast are covered as well. Um, so moving forward, we can work on uh, expanding the, the public archaeology outreach, advocacy, and education projects that we're working on with uh, the various things that we do under the name Go Dig a Hole. Um, so uh, what's ahead for the public archaeology projects? Uh, I'm hoping to go back to Kentucky and work on the Moseon Insight again. Uh, there's Ooh. a lot of work to still be done there, and uh, it was a lot of fun and hoping to bring more more people from various walks of life into that, but we're also looking for some um, <clears throat> potential sites to work on here in the Pacific Northwest, so uh, a lot of work to do there. Um, and big thank you to all the supporters, Brielle, Jonathan, Rende, Brent, Kevin, Holly, Ryan, Blair, Julia, Bill, Megan, Joseph, and Kelly. Uh, you all pushed it past the first goal, so thank you. Uh, you can get your Go Dig a Hole stickers and other perks uh, from signing up. Uh, you can also support the Go Dig a Hole podcast and all of our projects without paying anything, just by sharing the podcast or social media with your friends, coworkers, classmates, your dig partner, teacher, or the person who helps check you for ticks. <laughs> uh, and I'd also like to uh, send... Uh, a message of, of memory of, of Wendy Ashmore. Last week, one of my friends, mentors, and early role models passed away. Um, Wendy Ashmore was an incredible Maya archaeologist, and she was a pioneer of feminist archaeology and a major influence on uh, settlement studies in the Maya region. 
And her work was a huge influence on me when I first got into archaeology and played a huge part in shaping my career from the start. So I'm thankful I got to meet her and her husband, Tom, and uh, I'm sending love and condolences to her family and her friends. Um, so here we are in the Airstream studio in Portland, Oregon, and uh, we're finally using the entire podcast setup in the Airstream. Uh, yes. So we've got Tia Cody and Katie Tipton here joining us. Uh, Tia, Hello. you recently graduated uh, from Portland State University with a master's in anthropology, mm -hmm. and your thesis was called LIDAR Predictive Modeling of Kalapuya Mound Sites in the Kalapuya Watershed, Oregon. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> And uh, from what I understand, it used geospatial approaches to analyze settlement patterns in a pretty significant uh, cultural area south of Salem, Oregon. Yeah. Nice. And uh, Katie Tipton here is uh, also a grad student at Portland State uh, who's working to build a database to connect archaeological resources in Oregon with public knowledge and collections. Yep. You are correct. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, Tia, tell us a little bit about uh, your research. Um, yeah. So, in uh, 2016, the Grand Ron tribe here in Oregon contacted um, my advisor, Dr. Shelby Anderson, and basically asked if she had any student crazy enough to want to do anything with GIS. And she was like, guess what? I do have a student who's crazy <laughs> enough to want to do something with GIS. Um, and so they asked if... Um, using LIDAR, we could create a predictive model to identify um, Native American mound sites in the southern Willamette Valley, in the Kalapuya watershed in particular. Um, these mounds have been known to people and archaeologists in Oregon since like the 1890s, and every archaeologist here knows about them, but we don't know anything about them. There's like upwards of 400 mounds from Albany to Eugene alone, and hardly anything's been done on them. The last excavation was in the 90s. Um, so we don't know much about them, but we don't even know where they are to begin with. So mm. the Grand Ron's first question was, can we use LIDAR to find them? Because if we can find them, then we can protect them. And if the Grand Ron so wishes, we can study them, excavate if they want. Um, but yeah, so I was using LIDAR and GIS and other remote sensing data. So uh, remote sensing like satellite imagery to help find these mound sites and I was able to find seven new previously unrecorded mound sites in the Willamette Valley as well as um, the model was able to identify the ones that had been previously recorded so it worked um, which was awesome <laughs> it's great to present a thesis that I was like it did the thing <laughs> as yes. opposed to me like eh, four years and it didn't do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah so that's kind of a general like quick glance at my thesis work nice um, I have some more questions about that um, so uh, the the methods for using um, LIDAR to, to build a predictive model um, to identify new sites and also like verify the location of known sites. Mm -hmm. um, was What were some of the, the ways that you uh, kind of built in the prediction part of that? Yeah, so it was um, definitely a big learning curve trying to figure out how to get um, LIDAR to be predictive. Um, but I initially started out with, so almost every article that talks about using LIDAR to find archaeological sites talks about the fact that 
the slope change is so noticeable in the LIDAR. When you change it over to a slope data set as opposed to elevation, mm. you can see these sites like beautifully. They like show up and it's really great. So I was like, okay, well, if the slope is something that is is easily identifiable for a site, I should be able to use that to help me find it. Um, so I tried to do something that looked at slope and then looked at all other things that had the same slope change. And that was a silly idea because, I mean, lots of things have a slope of like five degrees. So uh -huh. it was like pulling out everything that had a slope of five. And it was like, that's a road that doesn't help me at all. Yeah. Um. So after a while, I started talking to a bunch of other GIS professionals who do work with this more mm. often because archaeologists, in honesty, are really crappy with using GIS because it's a complicated <laughs> software. It's not yeah. easy. Yeah. <laughs> no. So I was talking to a professor of mine and he was like, well, in forestry, they'll take LIDAR before you clear out the vegetation and they'll flip it upside down and then mm. they'll do some mm. massive calculations that I don't understand. Um, to figure out the height of the tree canopy and therefore test how like basically happy those trees are in that area. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, I don't know if that's something you could do, that if you flip the LIDAR over and then thus make a mound, a sink, that would catch water. He's like, I don't know if you'd be able to do something with that and then find, like tell the program to look for that. So basically the way that I got the program to predict where these mounds are is... I flipped my lighter over, made my mound sink, sinks, and then flooded it with digital water, basically. And then the amount of water that was there, I based, so I did area, I did slope, so that came back in, and then elevation, because those are all things that are very specific mm -hmm. to mounds. And then told the computer, I want you just to look for things that look like that, that they have these three characteristics. And the computer was able to do it based off of that. It was able to find the area the slope and the elevation all combine and find mounds. Granted, my model still identifies like a bunch of stuff that's not mound, uh -huh. but it's getting there. It's definitely a good step in the right direction for finding these things. <laughs> that is super cool. Thanks. So um, I guess like to give some some like background context to um, the, the mounds themselves, um, what is what is the area like? Like what is the Kalapuya watershed like so environmentally? The, yeah, so the Kalapuya watershed is covers 234,000 acres um, in the southern Willamette Valley, and it is 94% privately owned. Um, so the most of the state-owned property is in the Cascades. Um, so anything that's in the valley, which is mostly where you're going to find these mound sites, um, is owned by private landowners, farmers, um, who some of them have been there since the 1840s on that same property. Um, previously, it was uh, oak savanna type property, type land um, that has now been completely changed into just pretty much open kind of prairie land for mm -hmm. different kinds of farming. Um, the Kalapuya is one of the more stable of the rivers in that region, so it doesn't have a lot of uh, channel braiding or channel fluctuation. Mm -hmm. um, so it's potentially a reason as to why mounds are so prevalent in that watershed. Um, 
Tipton, Katie Tipton went down with me to look at the mounds, and uh, every landowner we talked to knew about these things. They were like, wow. They were like, yeah. oh, yeah, the Kalapuyan Mounds, definitely. And they knew about <laughs> the Kalapuyan people, and they knew like what had been done with these mounds. So they're very knowledgeable, and it's not like these things are, to them, so odd and mysterious. They're like, oh, yeah. Jim down the road has like five on his property. <laughs> so, um, so the river is doesn't braid a lot, so it doesn't have a lot of destruction in the area. So I think mm-hmm. that's what allows the mounds to still be present there. Um, but yeah, they're really the ones that we did see. They're heavily overgrown in some areas. Um, they're covered in blackberry. Mm. Um, large trees are still growing on them. Uh, one landowner has a mound on his property that he's been protecting for 90 plus years he's been plowing around it and he's allowed three large oak trees to grow on top of it so um yeah they're they're really cool sites but if you don't know what you're looking for you can easily just like walk right by them yeah Mm -hmm. like oh it's an undulation in the train (laughs) (laughs) that is cool that you got to go out and uh, ground truth it yeah that was the hardest part i think about this whole process was i sent um 17 landowner letters out to people who I identified as having most likely having a really good mound on their property. Yeah. Um, I got seven no's, seven no responses, and only three yeses from people. Um, so I visited three properties, two of which had Calipuyan mounds on them, and one. Um, all the things that my model discovered were either false positives or they were historic sites. Like oh, we found weird. a historic foundation, a burn pile, a trash pile. Um, so that was surprising that the model huh. is identifying things that are not just the Calipuyan mounts, which was kind of like, oh, that's a positive <laughs> side effect of yeah. this. <laughs> it found a mound, but not a Calipuyan one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there were several times where people were like, what'd you find there? And I'm like... Not exactly what I was looking for, but it's still pretty cool. <laughs> like one time the model identified, I was looking through it and I was like, oh my God, that's like, there's a certain set of characteristics in the model that make a, a mound look very like moundy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. And I was like so excited. And I flipped over to the aerial imagery and it was a pitcher's mound. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, darn. Nice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so the Calipuy watershed is it's really gorgeous. It's a beautiful area. Um, mm-hmm. The people there are pretty friendly and really great. Um, the landowners are incredibly knowledgeable mm. and really good stewards of this archaeological information. That it was imp- like sh- shocking and impressive to me. Yeah, the amount that these people knew and were like, oh yeah, like one landowner had has been chasing people like looters off his property. Oh wow, off a mound for years. Wow. That yeah. is amazing to hear. Oh, that it, restores my faith in humanity, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> that is super cool. Yeah, it was really, it's really awesome. So in terms of, you, you mentioned that not much is known about the mounds. Um, what What is known about the Kalapuyan culture that uh, created the mounds? So there's not a lot of ethnographic information um, on the Kalapuyan themselves, there's only a couple like ethnographic texts on them and reading through those ethnographic texts, not a one of them mentions mounds. Wow. Um, and they don't really mention their burial practices. The only real mention of burial practices that I found that was seemed more closely related to mine was a, a man wrote into the American 
uh, Antiquarian Journal, I think is what it was, or the American Antiquity Oriental Journal, something like that, in the 1890s. And he mentioned that he saw a Kalapuyan burial in which they buried them in the ground, put slabs around, and then covered it up and then lit a fire Wow! on top. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily exactly what we've found in the mounds themselves, but it was definitely the an intriguing idea that, okay, maybe we'll see slabs in some of them. Um, but there's almost nothing in the ethnographic texts about them. Mostly what we know about the mounds themselves is from the limited amount of excavation done. Um, there have been human remains found in every excavated mound except for four, and those were the Kirk Park mound sites mm. done during the Fern Ridge Reservoir Project in the 80s. Um, uh, yeah, so those ones didn't have human remains, but all the others do. Firecracked rock is in almost every single one of them. Darker, mm. Notably darker soils are noted in every single one. Um, lithic, An increase in lithic material as you're moving up to them. Mm. Um, but in some mounds excavated from the 1940s by William S. Laughlin, they found a whalebone club. They found, like, a bear cape. Um, they found oh, wow. beads. They found, like, just outstanding, incredible artifacts in these. Um, and, of course, took them and put them <laughs> in places. That, <laughs> who knows? <Yeah. laughs> um, I'm not laughing because that's funny. I'm laughing because that's just ridiculous. But well, right, you're just like, so <laughs> predictable. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Of course. Was like pre nineteen sixties. So. Yeah. Why not keep it for yourself? <laughs> so that that makes me that makes me curious. Uh, in coordinating with the Grand Ronde tribe, mm-hmm. what was it like um, working with them? What were some of the concerns that they were hoping to address with this project? Yeah, it was an incredibly rewarding experience working with the Grand Ronde. They them and their cultural team are absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to make very clear that they were not at the time very interested in doing any sort of excavation on mm-hmm. them at all um which makes sense if they have human remains in them yeah you don't really want to go and touch those um but they were super supportive and they really wanted to do a lot of public presentations that was part of the agreement in doing this project was as if I can present somewhere that I should be going out and sharing this information with people, telling them about it. Um, but their main goal was using this to highlight where the mounds are, to then go out, record mm. them, and then protect them under Oregon state law since they've been recorded. Nice. So their main thing was they want to get out there and make sure that people can't just continue to go plow through these things. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was their initial goal, um, was just to get out there and protect. Um and they've been so kind and generous with being like if like if you can use this and you can help people find these mounds and protect them, different agencies, stuff like that. They've been really positive towards that. Um, I've presented to the Grand Ron several times. I've presented at the NWACs. Um, so it's been an incredibly rewarding and they've been so supportive and fantastic this whole time. And it's just once again reaffirms kind of thought process that I have that frequently Native Americans have questioned the same questions they want answered as we want answered. It's just they might want a different outcome at the end yeah. from those yeah. answers. And that it like they want to know about these mounds and every archaeologist in Oregon wants to know about these mounds. Yes. So it's, yeah. it's like the easiest thing in the world to like work with the tribe and be like, cool, let's find these things. Um, so it just was reaffirming that like we all have the same questions we want answered and we mm-hmm. can honor Native wishes Yeah, in these types of That's endeavors. very cool. And it's it's one of those things too. Uh, you you uh, just mentioned that uh, you know archaeologists want to know more about the mounds, the Grand Ron want to know more about the mounds. 
but archaeologists I think would typically be expected to go okay let's excavate them mm-hmm. and you know the tribe of course is like our ancestors are there don't do that <laughs> <laughs> let's please keep them buried <laughs> we don't need you to dig to tell us they're there yeah we already got that <laughs> thank you yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah so it's been it's been a great project and it's been a lot of fun and it was definitely fulfilled like my nerdy side <laughs> that I was like got to sit and like get really intense in the computer yeah, yeah. making silly faces but like it's a podcast you can't yeah, you, gotta, <laughs> you gotta hold your mouth right when you're doing GIS otherwise like, the models don't work exactly yeah. if you don't have a good furrow yes. right here like there's no point yeah oh yeah so, the, the programs <laughs> yeah <laughs> I got all my wrinkles in my forehead from uh, doing GIS uh, as well. Exactly. It, I'm going to blame it on that at least. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's the only way the program will, will run. Yeah. yeah. To furrow and then hop on one foot and yeah. like, hold a lemon. <laughs> you didn't lick it, did you? No. Like the, oh. That makes the program angry. Yeah. <laughs> it's anti-lemon licking. <laughs> so, Katie, uh, let's talk about your work. So, um, from, from what I've been able to find out um, uh, you're working on building a database that connects um, archaeological resources um, uh, known like site locations and collections um, and making it relevant to the public and to other archaeologists working in the area as well uh, which I think is like a stellar goal to like not only make archaeology relevant but to make <clears throat> you know these data sets more meaningful and readily available for research mm-hmm. in the area. Uh, and on, on the site that you built, um, which is uh, arcdatabasepdx.wordpress.com, uh, you describe the database uh, that you're working on in the context of other archaeological tools. And, and uh, the way you describe it is uh, archaeological material and cultural resources are finite resources, which means we all have the responsibility to ensure that these resources are protected. Besides the trowel, archaeologists and many others utilize many ways of engaging with the past in order to preserve these finite resources. The database established through this project is one way to minimize the impact of archaeological investigations on cultural resources. Uh, I think that that's uh, a really important thing is to minimize the impact of archaeological investigations, which kind of goes back to what you were talking about, the the differences in goals between uh, investigating mounds mm-hmm. and all that. So uh, you listed five goals for the project. What have you found so far in your investigations? Uh, not very much, actually. <laughs> I'm still kind of in the beginning process of getting data, uh-huh. but so far I'm finding building a database is very difficult. Yes. There's Correct. Some, yes. <laughs> There's so many options out there. So I'm <clears throat> basically building a basic relational database that will house enough information that will um, basically connect the collections to who has it, but we can decouple that if the person who has the collections doesn't want to be named yet. Mm. So mm. at least we know it's out there yeah. and things do exist in certain areas, but we're not going to go after whoever has it just quite yet. Um, so that's been very hard to to kind of make. I had to go through the internal review board at mm. Portland State University to make sure that <clears throat> the questions and what I'm gathering is not harmful yeah. to the yeah. public. So that was a totally different thing I didn't know I had to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like outside archaeology. I have to talk to people. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But also I'm noticing in my investigations, there actually are a lot of data gaps. So we do have all mm. these siloed databases, but they're still missing a lot of information. And that's from the public itself. Like, mm -hmm. um, not to call out the SHPO, the State <laughs> Historic Preservation <laughs> Office, <Painted>. but <laughs> I will. Um, they have a database and they have what they call ticklers. Literally, they're called ticklers. Um, where they're like hearsay reports of people coming to the Shippo and saying, hey, I found this on this property. Mm. They're like, cool. Well, we'll take your name and number and put a little polygon mm. right on the, yeah. the map. But there's no follow up. There's nothing kind of helping people kind of follow up and do a clearinghouse on that. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I decided to investigate, investigate these ticklers uh, for Washington County and Multnomah County. Because that's where I'm focusing my research right now because there's just nice. so that's much exciting. going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I found seven. That's it. Seven, seven ticklers? ticklers. Yeah. None of them have been followed up on. And oh. at wow. least in the database, there's not more information. It has mm -hmm. like, I don't know if any of you have used the Oregon database, but yeah. it'll say null. Yeah. It won't give you any more information. Mm -hmm. yeah. It'll just have in the comments, seven no. flakes. And here's a phone number. So, <laughs> so I found that really, really interesting because I'm like, well, how am I supposed to, it was recorded in 2002. Is yeah. this person even still there? Has yeah. it been followed yeah. up? So that was an interesting example mm. that I found Yeah, to populate the database. So the database is lacking <laughs> with stuff. But. So aside from uh, the, the lack of follow-up with the, the ticklers, on the uh, the state managed dat database, um, what are some of the other gaps in in data that you're finding? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I'm finding um, not gaps in the follow up, but gaps in knowledge of what other archaeologists know. Mm. Mm. So it's kind of like one archaeologist may know a ton about an area just because they've done a lot of work there. But yeah. then if you're a new person coming in, you don't know Bob from working with them multiple times or coming across them. You just go right in and you don't know that something has been noted in that area. Yeah. Mm. So that's something I'm finding also as a gap is just personal knowledge. Yeah, that's pretty crucial. And, and that's one of those things like you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I think so much of archeology, span even still, like it's, it's not to blame like a certain time period of archeology, span even still, a lot of the work is just kind of kept mm -hmm. up in your head and there's, you know, on a site form, like where's the, where's the field in the site form to, to like spell out like the, the real like qualitative stuff mm -hmm. that, you know, might not be, you know, what really drives the NRHP recommendation on a site, but you know, it's the kind of thing that can help out an archeologist or, or really help out like the goals of, of your, your database. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I found that recently, like just even knowing who to talk to is, is a problem as well. Like I, I happened mm -hmm. to stumble upon uh, a, a Facebook uh, messenger conversation with uh, Leland Gilson, the former uh, state archaeologist yeah. for Oregon. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize he was the former state archaeologist for Oregon. <laughs> we just started talking ab about something on Facebook, and then it moved from you know the the page to the direct messages. And then he started saying, "Oh, you need to talk to so and so for this thing, so and so for this thing, so and so for that thing. If you want to do all these things, you you know these are the people to talk to." And I was like, "I never would have thought about that. I I yeah." I just don't even know where to look. Yeah. Well, I feel things are, for my frustration is everything's so siloed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nothing is 
really talking to each other yes. in a sense. So you're like, I didn't know I was supposed to go to the Oregon University of Oregon and check in with that. Or yeah, it also makes you kind of begin to get a little scared at like all those archaeological contexts that we've like yeah. put together for like oh yeah Multnomah County or like the Harney Basin like all that stuff that you start to realize like those contexts are only based mm-hmm. off of what archaeologists have found right. and if you're not talking to like landowners in those areas and you can be like missing gigantic sites that well, like and published yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> not just that people are found. Oh, no. <laughs> not that can of worms. <laughs> Keep it shut. Keep it shut. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've been also learning that people do just want to talk about archaeology. They get really, really excited when I approach them and say, hey, I heard you have a collection or you've noted a site before and I just want to follow up with you. And they're like, yes, I want to talk to you about everything. And they just they just want to be heard. Yeah. And they're just excited mm-hmm. that someone just wants to sit down and not tell them anything about it, not, you know, tell mm-hmm. them what to do right at that moment, but just yeah. like receive the input and listen. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Are you able to record any of those conversations? I know with IRB, yeah. like it's <laughs> now now I am. <laughs> okay. So I was having informal conversations with people and I couldn't write anything down yeah. or record. And now I can formally follow up with surveys. Oh, nice. To, with them. That's really exciting. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm going to sort of switch hats. I am an in, a SHPO intern now. Ah, so, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I'm familiar with the gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is an acknowledgement. I'm going to take off that hat yeah. and <laughs> my podcasting hat yeah. and say this is one of the reasons where doing a project like yours is so important mm-hmm. because even in the office it's known like archaeologists in CRM should However, generally, at least in Oregon, and I am positive other places, don't always check with the tribes. And that's where there's a lot of stuff in in the area or in the state that is not recorded with shippos. They are with tippos or with the tribes generally, and they keep their own records and don't always share with everyone else. Right. There's that massive silo problem when you like, the Forest Service has sites that they've never given yes. to the SHPO or like BLM land has their own BLM numbers. And exactly. Like exactly what you were saying is that like for some reason archaeological information is so siloed that everyone's like, but it's like ours. Like, yeah. You don't you don't get it. <laughs> yeah, like, it's mine. And yeah. I want to more focus on like getting the public more involved in that mm-hmm. kind of give and take because I feel like from talking to people, they're like, I didn't know I could just go to the SHPO or yeah. come to Portland State or go to one of the universities. They're just like, I just have it. I don't, mm-hmm. I just, no. Yeah. It's in a shoe box collecting dust now. And that's no better than it sitting in a museum also mm-hmm. collecting right. dust. So we want to get some light on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's super awesome. Um, so have you started to work with the, the, the public yet on, on get, getting like their information into the database? A little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. So right now I've sent out kind of like formal surveys mm-hmm. that kind of help repopulate the database and no one's filled it out yet but (laughs) it's uh the part of this is learning what works and what doesn't work Mm -hmm. to get people involved and Mm -hmm. i'm learning we really need to be active we can't just have a passive spot for people to come you have to actively Mm -hmm. seek out the people and follow up with them and yeah make sure they know that like i'm still here i'm not forgetting about you yeah Mm -hmm. so that's the only interaction i've really had so far i've tried going to a couple local interest group meetings 
We're hopefully going to work with the OAS, the Oregon Archaeological Society. Yeah, because they have a, Yeah, they have a big collections of from past excavations from the 40s and 50s mm-hmm. that hopefully we can get that information into the database. Um, yeah, I'm just starting on that. Nice. <laughs> so getting there. Yeah, th- uh, that's really exciting. The project sounds like it has immense potential to kind of change the way archaeology is done in the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Multnomah and Washington counties, you know, there's so much development going on right now, both like residential and commercial mm-hmm. that, <clears throat> mm-hmm. you know, these collections and even just the the private knowledge in the public um, could be lost, you know, just from people moving away and getting displaced or, you know, selling off their lands, yeah. mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, so that's super important. So uh, as far as talking about, like, what's ahead for the project, um, what are the kinds of things that um, you need help with? Like, how can people help? Um, just, what are you looking for? Yeah, just getting the word out there is... <clears throat> kind of the hardest part right now is mm-hmm. like I can only do so much but mm-hmm. by it just spreading through word of mouth a lot of people have gotten in contact with me of like hey Tia Cody mentioned you're you know collecting information <laughs> yeah. she gave me your information so mm-hmm. let's talk Good. so it's just kind of a word of mouth campaign right now you mm-hmm. should have your own booth at the road show I, I am good I, I did <laughs> well I did last year and um, I'm finding people are just a little scared to mm-hmm. talk to me because they're like, well, what's going to happen with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just trying to reassure, like, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to be taken away. Right now, we just we just want to know. Yeah. And then people start to kind of loosen up a little and just tell me all about their mammoth tooth. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Actually, I don't I don't know anything. <laughs> I, I can direct you to the right person, but yeah, it's, it's a tooth. Like that was something I ran into with my thesis is I had multiple landowners that I contacted ask me, well, what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Like if you find anything, what's going to happen to me? And that the ship, I feel like the ship and like the state and the archaeologists like to, to tout that like their land's not going to get taken away. Like it's been these like companies that have really pushed on people that like the archaeologists are out to like take your stuff. But we haven't done a good job telling them that mm-hmm. you're going to be okay, that it's okay to share information with us, that, like, we want you to be good stewards. We want to work with you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think archaeologists think that we're, like, really knocking it out of the park with that. But no, yeah. we're not. We're, <laughs> yeah. we're doing a terrible, terrible yes. job. Well, and that there's so many options out there of, like, if you do have a site, okay, that may limit some of the things of what you're going to do with your land, but there are tax breaks. Um, yeah. Not tax breaks, but incentives that out there that, can be used for the public Mm. or getting an easement and there are positive Mm. steps to take if there is a site on your land you're not going to have it taken by the government yeah we're not going to take it away i mean no one's there right now to take it anyways but (laughs) (laughs) you're good for the time being yeah so for right now yeah but uh um just one example we are actually working with a private landowner out in north plains and she came to the road show two years ago she's Mm. she had all these points and she's like I want these looked at. What are these? And so we're going to work with her and survey her whole 89 acres of her property in North Plains and um, hopefully delineate a site for her and get the next steps because she wants to sell the property in like two or three years and just help her like, okay, you have a site. Here are your next steps. When you you sell the property, make sure you know the next seller or the buyer knows knows what's going on. And she's been super excited she wants no monetary value out of it she's like i just want to know 
Yeah. And most people do. And that's where I think like there is, like you guys were saying, this innate fear that someone's going to come take something away. But the, generally, it's the same desire that archaeologists have. They just want to know mm -hmm. more about what's going on. And even the tribes in a lot of mm -hmm. cases are like, cool, there's something or maybe we knew something was there. What do you, you know, what's going on? Mm -hmm. um, and protecting things doesn't mean taking it away. And I think that's where people get scared because they hear stories of the, you know, um, projects being averted or stopped because of, you know, burials or things like that. But that is like one extremely rare <laughs> and out of the norm. Um, and it's not necessarily going to be something that you're ever involved with. If it's on, if you're in a pasture on a farm, which is 90% of where these come into play, mm -hmm. you're not going to be building, at least in the foreseeable future, a like subdivision in there, right? Yeah. So that would be maybe one situation to where things have to be taken into account. But that also doesn't mean that you won't be able to build. That's what CRM as a field actually does is we help mitigate and find out when things are going to be destroyed so people forget that it's like we're not out to save as much as it would be an amazing thing to be able to do we're not necessarily out to save 100 percent of all of the sites out there mm -hmm. it is to find out as much as we can protect the most important things and then we know that our society is what it is and things are going to get built and developed. So if you have something and you're planning on building a pool or a garage or something, you know, have someone come out and check it out and see what's going on. Because once it's gone, it's gone and we will never know. You can save your mammoth tooth or... It's always a mammoth tooth. But that doesn't, that takes it out of context and that's something we will never be able to relearn where that mm -hmm. series of points or whatever came from. So... One of the first times I went to an OAS meeting, uh, John Pauly, uh, who's with Oregon Shippo, gave a presentation on <clears throat> a private landowner that was mm -hmm. building a pond in his backyard. And uh, it was like a decorative landscape feature. And uh, as he was digging out bushes in his yard, he found a biface cache. Yeah. And it, it was <clears throat> like great great like research value good archaeological you know quality mm -hmm. and so the the guy emails a picture and, and he laid it out on his picnic table with like rulers and stuff and uh, i forget how many bifaces were in there but they were these enormous obsidian bifaces and uh, he was like hey i found these things under a bush uh are these of any interest to you and so John Polly goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it ended up growing into this, this thing that, that, you know, like, uh, someone from Shippo came and, and talked to him and it took a little bit of correspondence and checking it out, like on the ground, digging around and kind of offering just volunteer time to go look at this thing, mm -hmm. uh, and communicating that. Um, you can still build your pond, but we would really like to dig this thing up before you build your pond and we lose any chance to learn anything about it. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So the landowner was really cooperative about it. And it ended up being this thing where they, they bust in like middle schoolers to come and do like 
um, a big public archaeology thing until the site had been fully investigated. And, you know, they, they, yeah. they're like, okay, well, we've learned as much as we think we can learn here. Um, now it's going to become a pond. And yeah. we've already dug your pond. <laughs> yeah. 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 Half, half of it is done by hand. Yeah. Could you imagine digging and not having to backfill? Like, that sounds amazing. Yes. I'm, I'm sure they backfill, but. Yeah. yeah. I love backfilling. Is that weird? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think there were actually some CRM firms that volunteered on that project, too. Yeah. Like a little bit of labor. So that was kind of fun as far as it was very much a community thing. You had the shippo, you had um, middle schoolers and community members, landowner and local archaeologists mm -hmm. kind of all working together. And that's something you don't see very often. Yeah. Um, and like Oregon Public Broadcasting went out and talked yeah. about it. Uh, yeah. But it, it, Katie, it makes me think like uh, a resource like what you're building could have opportunity to have more stories like that. Like I'd, I'd love yeah. to hear more success stories I in Oregon. So. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of future hopes for this project. One of them is like way off in the distant future, but like kind of more of a public archeology span network here in Oregon. And hopefully yeah. that database can be that That'd be amazing. little yeah. foundation for it. And I think yeah. what's great about what both of you are doing in your projects is you're finding the public where they live. Like, like, quite literally like you're you're going you're going <laughs> sending out the landowner notices and and like reaching out to them but like you're you're finding ways to connect to them and, and mm. follow up with with you know the public in in ways that are meaningful to them and like really bringing it to them rather than like you said earlier um you know our or both of you have, have really said like archaeologists assume that we're doing a great job because we we go okay here's here's our research it is presented it is available but it's like uh, it's a very passive way mm -hmm. of of finding that those resources and stuff. And so, you know, as both of you have found, like all the all the knowledge is siloed. And so you've got to know exactly where to look. And so for the general public, they're not exactly going to have the kinds of skills to know like, OK, well, in order to find this, I need to go look with the state in order to find this. I need to go look with BLM. Uh, you know, maybe the Army Corps of Engineers has some information about sites along waterways mm -hmm. stuff like that and uh once their know. phones get turned back on <laughs> yes they're still working i think army corps <clears throat> fingers crossed yeah <laughs> <laughs> we, they better be we hope. <laughs> so on that that's a good way to uh transition into the uh the 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 big issue that's happening um so uh uh, a new thing that I was reading this morning was uh, David Anderson is an archaeologist who uh, works a lot with um, public perceptions and uh, debunking pseudo-archaeology and just like generally bad information about archaeology. So he's a saint? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's another one of the mythbusters of archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's been on Archie Fantasies too, so uh, you can check him out. But he, he frequently writes for Forbes, and so mm. he, he had an article published about uh, the shutdown. And there's been a lot of writing about it and a, a lot of posting on social media about it. And uh, the, the takeaway that, that he had was that... Um, 50 years ago, the government agreed to prioritize protecting archaeological resources through, you know, various acts and laws and legislations that were on federal and state levels. And so um, that was all agreed upon around 50 years ago. And what's happening now is just a widespread failure to uphold that responsibility. And so, mm. you know, we're seeing now... Um, 
800,000 federal employees are without work and we're entering the fourth week of uh, the shutdown. So we're looking at now a, a month of shutdown. And mm -hmm. finally, uh, people are, are like losing paychecks because of it. Mm -hmm. um, but what's more than the 800,000 federal employees are the 4.1 million service contract Mm -hmm. uh, employees. Mm -hmm. And so it's a huge problem. We're looking at almost 5 million people uh, who can't work, who can't do their jobs, uh, and can't protect archaeological resources, can't protect uh, natural resources. And so <clears throat> it's already just after, you know, three and some fraction weeks, mm -hmm. uh, it's a disaster for cultural and natural resources and you know like i i go out hiking every weekend and i'm now having to plan hikes around like uh okay well i know that there's uh way too much human feces on this trail mm. because nobody's there to like stop people from just being complete idiots uh and they're just going to go out and do that but you know mm. uh the joshua trees got cut down not all of them, but you know, Joshua trees got cut down because people wanted to off-road on some boulders that were out there. Um, and it's like, who knows what else is around because there's not, there, who, who knows what what other damage has been done because nobody's around to like record the damage and really report on it. So a lot, a mm -hmm. lot of groups have stepped up to volunteer to clean up trails and volunteer to kind of uh, supervise and, and all that, but it's all out mayhem. And, uh, the shutdown is horrendous no matter how you slice it. And um, I've reached out to a few archaeologists with uh, the BLM uh, to see if they, they could speak on it. And there's a bill called the Taft-Hartley bill. Mm -hmm. And there's other bills that, that prevent government employees from organizing their labor or speaking out in anything that could be interpreted as a protest. Um, so one of the things that, that they urged was just to speak out on their behalf and you know get people riled up and, and push them in the right direction to speak on their behalf because uh not only are they losing paychecks now but they could be laid off or even have uh, legal action taken against them for even uh, speaking up on this so um i'm involved with uh, the local dsa and the labor commission uh re released a uh, letter recently talking about the the shutdown and um the, the highlights there are that uh, our president is trying to divide the working class as part of his racist agenda, but DSA members who are federal workers are speaking out and building solidarity. Um, this past Friday, there was a march on Washington where federal employees gathered together. And I haven't been able to find any information about it, so it wasn't reported in the news. And yeah, I it was saw largely that. quiet on social yeah, media, too. Yeah. <clears throat> photos. Yeah, I saw photos I like, oh. of people holding the signs that are like, we want to work thing, but yeah. I never saw any, like, yeah. anything else. Same. So it's hard to really know like what the outcomes were, what the goals were, mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. Um, and I think it goes back to you know the, the fear of, of retribution for their, their speaking out. Yeah. Um, but the, the main point was to call your congressional representatives and both senators from your states, uh, demand that they end the shutdown immediately, and also back pay all furloughed government workers as well as contractors. Uh, and so uh, Representative Presley is the one really kind of spearheading the the push to end the, the shutdown and to back pay the employees. So um, urging all elected officials to kind of give support to Presley on <clears throat> on those issues around the, the shutdown. Um, and it, it 
it's like it's one of those things that's so frustrating because you're seeing some elected officials saying, well, what if we give him like two billion for the wall? Like he's he's asking for like uh, many more billions than that. But what if we give him like two? Like, and it's like <clears throat> the the thing is, it's not about the wall. <laughs> it's not about the wall it was never about the wall uh naomi klein uh is is a really great writer and mm-hmm. she's she's written a couple books one's called the shock doctrine and the other one's called no is not enough and in those books she talks about um disaster capitalism and so she spells out the situations that happened uh in post katrina new orleans and louisiana uh post sandy uh, New York and New Jersey, post Maria, uh, Puerto Rico, and um, now we're seeing the same conditions arising in what is what is happening with the wall is it's an engineered crisis, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so in in the aftermath of these hurricanes, it, it was natural disasters that was that presented the initial crisis to various um, federal agencies to respond and to local communities. Uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, recovering economically and and all that. Um, but what's happening now is is it's just a totally engineered crisis of the same kind of characteristics. And what Naomi Klein spells out is that there is one person who's been behind uh, all of these crises, and that's Mike Pence. Mm. And so Mike Pence was governor of Indiana during these, these crises, and he oversaw various public health policies that ended up resulting in the worst HIV and AIDS epidemic since the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so you just have this collection of people who are out only for themselves and they want to they want to bring in their own private interests and it's just smash and grab capitalism. They they're just going in and they're they're taxing uh working people they're taxing the the federal government's ability to even function on a basic level mm-hmm. and what's going to end up happening is they're going to bring in their own privatized firms to come and oversee like building the wall and overseeing you know compliance in you know whatever uh terms they see fit um and so it's one of those things where we can't let the 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 hot social issues around the wall like uh, you know, there's various like racist and classist and xenophobic rhetoric that's being thrown around. We can't let these kinds of things distract us on um, on the wall, right? Mm. We we have to to you know really come back to the the heart of the issue is um, this is an attack on the responsibilities of the government. This is an attack on functional democracy, and it, it's an attack on working people. You know the eight hundred thousand federal employees, the four point one million service contract employees, um, and so, you know, if, if we can find a way to organize around uh, those common interests of, like, just getting back to work, yeah. um, and and protecting uh, the things that we're supposed to be protecting, the cultural and natural resources, um, protecting our food supply, uh, our air and water stuff like that. Um, it's, it's just egregious. And, uh, it was about not quite a month ago, uh, Kirsten, that you and I were, uh, we, we did like a, our last like uh, live episode that we did. Oh, uh, yeah, it was yeah. like a year end wrap up. Um, mm-hmm. one of the things we talked about was like, um, I, I can't remember if the shutdown had happened yet or not. I, I think it had, or maybe it was looking like it would happen, but, mm-hmm. um, 
one of the things that we talked about was like, when is it enough? Like, when are people just going to have enough? Mm -hmm. And and what's going to happen? Like, how do we, how do we stop this? And how do we start to actually like dial things back in our favor to get what we want? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I just don't see anybody being served by this, uh, this, you know, circus. No. And it's, it's interesting to making the wall a very polar issue. Um, so going back to what a lot of people, well, what the president has created generally, um, he says it's about the wall. Just give me the wall and I'll do it. We'll, we'll all go back to work, whatever. But some of the things that um, haven't been well uh, discussed when it can't comes to the wall, even if I may have a personal opinion about you, but if you are for the wall, <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to put that out there. <clears throat> um, th- one of the things that, <laughs> that just check in the room. <laughs> <laughs> one of the tr- things that Trump did before he really put this, set it up to start, is he exempted the building of the wall from all federal regulation, including NEPA and NHPA. So that means that entire, because I had heard some rumblings of archaeologists being like, yeah, it'll be a great business opportunity. It'll be a great contract. (laughs) So there's a few out there. I know you guys exist. All I'm saying is that's not going to (laughs) happen if for some ungodly circumstance it gets approved or whatever. It exempts all of that. And there are mounds of... Uh, no pun intended consequences <laughs> where <laughs> do you have a model for that <laughs> i'll give you the database okay, cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um for just the entire that that section that they're wanting to do so mm-hmm. there's everything from one statement that I heard Trump make the other day is we don't want to build a whole wall, a wall, the entire length of the border. We just want it in key parts because we have natural borders that keep people out. The thing is the tens of thousands of people that die on a weekly basis trying to cross the border are in those areas. Yeah. Like if you're going to try to stop people from crossing, if you care about a humanitarian crisis, that would be the place that you want to put a wall because you were trying to keep people from dying. Right. It's not that. There's nothing yeah, compassionate about this. At no, all. it's, a, it's an, an ego grab. Yeah. It's oh, exactly. It's nothing has really gone to plan. And that the one thing besides the drain the swamp, which pretty much everybody gave up on that that's not really happening and the, <laughs> and the locker up which everyone's like you need to shut up about that now <laughs> but the only other thing that he had that really grabbed people's like attention that really got people on his platform was that build the wall yeah yeah and that it's not really i don't think any anybody really understands the idea of like a physical wall it just makes people in like Places that are not Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, California feel better and safer at night. Right. Like if you actually talk to the people who live on the border, they're like, yeah, it's really not that big of a problem. Yeah. Like we don't feel like attacked in the night. Like the border, like there, we read a really amazing article in our Mm. first year at grad school that was about the ideas of borders Mm -hmm. and that the idea of a border isn't actually solid until you live far away from one. 
mm-hmm. and that that is when the border starts to mean so much more because it becomes this like very abstract sort of like thing that like means protection. Yeah. But if you actually talk to people who live at these intersection zones, people are like, yeah, I go grocery shopping in Mexico. Like I like I don't know what you're talking about. This isn't really this big of an idea. Yeah. But you have people who a lot of Trump supporters tend to be in those areas that are a little bit further away. Granted, they are in Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, but they tend to be further away. So they don't really understand. So it was this like ideal that Mm. it made he had the one thing that he had left was this ideal that really grabbed people on. And so he's coming to the end of his presidency and he's starting to be like, I haven't like no, like I'm not doing well. Like his whole (laughs) business is in narcissism and ego. Yeah. Yeah. And he's losing it. Even people who like him are like, I'm kind of bummed I voted for you, bro. Yeah. yeah. And he's starting yeah. to get, it's that ego grab. And then you have people in the Republican Congress, <clears throat> Mitch McConnell, <clears throat> like, that they don't, subtle, subtle. they're making money hand over fist in following along with mm-hmm. Trump. Yeah. And staying, they don't like him, they don't give a crap about him, but that they're making hand over fist because of him. And so yeah. they won't open the government back up. Yeah. Like, Trump's an idiot. Like, he really can't do much, but he's got people around him like Mitch McConnell who are protecting him and yeah. keeping the government closed so that they can get probably some, this is, I don't have any basis, but like some sort of steel contract for right. steel slats. They've yeah. got somebody who likes steel, who's like, if you change it from concrete to steel, bro, I'll give you some free stuff. It's so, China. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can almost guarantee you. But yeah. it's just it's just one of those things that it's... His ego is in it is so much in the way, yeah, of him being able, like, if he was able to process, you know, larger things, but like, just that <laughs> ego grab that I have nothing left except this wall, yeah, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to dig in my heels on this wall. And I read something that the Trump administration really had no idea what a shutdown actually meant, yeah, oh, that yeah. they really didn't understand that people. We're going to lose their homes because their homes are paid for by the housing department. Like, yeah. right. or that people aren't going to get food stamps because that department's so not open eat. anymore. So yeah. they can't eat. And that you have, you know, you know, and to bring it to archaeology, like, I don't work for the government, but I work for a contracting firm that has a ton of work in Forest Service land. We're stalled. We can't move forward on any of it right now because we can't access the land or talk to anybody. Yeah. yeah. You can't even. Yeah, you can't even send a monitor because you just can't do anything. Well, and and I work, I'm a badge contractor for a federal agency that's open because we don't take taxpayer money, but we can't do anything because all the other agencies are closed. And I have project engineers going, well, why can't you do this? It's like, because there's no one to talk to on the other end. I can't. (laughs) They're like, well, we have a liaison. It's like, who am I liaisoning to? (laughs) Who's on the other side of this liaison? Do you understand how this works? So, yeah, it's stalling a lot of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to mention not just direct contractors, but people like daycare centers uh, that operate in D.C. off of federal, around federal buildings and workers, and then all of that sort of subsidiary contracting, you might argue. Um, And then... Any business who has any sort of permitting mm-hmm. through the federal government, which means any development. Um, so there goes all of that, like, the the economy is doing great. Like, going straight in in 2019, we're going to be, like, busting through and doing awesome still. No, 
this is gonna if anything is going to really slow things down it is a month and maybe month plus we'll see of a government shutdown that is going to slow things down was it the last longest one at three weeks delayed uh permitting for up to nine months in some cases so everything from your beer can labels. My beer. No, not the beer can labels. God damn it. <laughs> Why'd you have to do that? You brought it up again. The wound. <laughs> Two archaeological permits mm-hmm. are not going to be getting any sort of approval or even eyeballs for until whenever things open up. And then as many federal employees as there are because there weren't enough to begin with before the shutdown. (laughs) Exactly. It's operating on this idea that the government functioned properly and well-oiled to begin with. And then like, it's like, well, if we shut it down and then we like rev it back up again, the truck will run again. You're like, no, this is like a 1940s Ford that like takes a lot of energy to keep running. And sit. You don't let it sit. Don't let it cool down. (laughs) It's not well-oiled. Crap takes forever to get looked at. Like. Yeah. You've got to tune the carburetor while the engine's running. I know it sounds dangerous, but it's the only way. Otherwise, that engine's not going to crank again. Exactly. It's not a Nintendo cartridge, folks. No. You can't just take it out and blow on it and then That's put it back myth. in. That's a myth. <laughs> yeah, it's just... There's... I think it's also... I was talking to someone about this the other day, that it people really don't want to see the the complicated they don't really want to see all the nooks and crannies of something because it's harder to understand yeah you want the easy like if you say government shutdown and you can spin it that like well those like nasty people trying to do nasty things they're not going to work so it's okay and that's an easy to swallow pill but when you actually look at the bigger problem it's like no there's hundreds of thousands of millions of people who rely on this kind of work like if you Mm -hmm. want to get it down in the silliest of things the starbucks in downtown the majority of the people that go to that starbucks are federal workers yeah and if they don't get enough they're gonna start laying off people because they don't have the quote-unquote money to keep them on yeah so that it's just yeah it's really requires people to take a step back and get comfortable with being uncomfortable with all of the what it means Mm -hmm. with a government shutdown so here's a, a little uncomfortable piece. This is what you would call the real economic trickle down. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Oh, Sorry. man. So it's been great. This has been fun. Trickle down economics. Reagan. Sorry, I had to. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's like uh, Kirsten, you mentioned uh, like uh, daycares in D.C. and the Starbucks here just in downtown Portland. Like it, here in Portland, housing issues are right in our face, like they're painful and right in our face. We have a significant population that is un- unhoused. Um, and most people in this city are living paycheck to paycheck and they are one missed paycheck away from living on the streets. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of thing that's going to have severe impacts. And, and like we're all saying here, you're either directly impacted by the shutdown or you're indirectly impacted by the shutdown. Like nobody's getting out of this clean. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things like it's going to create some really, really big problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, like like you said, Katie, nobody nobody in the administration even knew that this would happen. They, they were just like, oh, oh. you see that? <laughs> yeah. I give the credit. Yeah. Yeah. Tia said that. Uh, I know we look so alike. 
<laughs> yeah, no, nobody knew in, in the administration knew that would happen, and they just didn't even think it through. They they were like, okay, well, I'm gonna throw a huge tantrum, and nobody's gonna call my bluff, and um, by the end of it, they're they're gonna say, you know, the people who can say, okay, fine, we'll we'll give you eighteen billion dollars for this racist monument. Um, that's just, you know, that's what they're going to do because they're going to be like, well, it's either that or uh, now we have an already severe homeless uh, crisis exacerbated even more. Mm-hmm. Just I listen. I don't know if to plug another podcast, but uh, Pod Save America is mm-hmm. an absolutely incredible mm-hmm. political podcast. Um, but definitely something that I think all of us can do and everyone who's listening is to call attention to the fact whether you're Republican or Democrat or neither, is that there are certain members of Congress who have gone to McConnell and asked to to reopen the government. Like, just let us reopen things Mm -hmm. and we'll continue to negotiate with you. Well, if you give us DACA, we'll give you something in return. That's just the political game. Like, it's gross and it's ugly, but the political game is that. But there are senators, both Democrat and Republican, who have signed... What was it that there was a hundred to zero that was like, yes, please reopen the government. And McConnell said no. Yeah. He yeah. went, nope. So I think it's important for us to continue to talk about is like there are people who are OK with this happening mm-hmm. and that they're doing it for reasons that aren't to for protection or anything. They're self-serving and that Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Congress have gone to put something forward. So I think that's important for us to remember to keep yelling about, to contact both your Democratic and Republican senators. This isn't just like call your Republican senators. We should be calling, you know, Oregon's ones, um, Merkley and Wyden, and being Mm -hmm. like, continue, please don't stop. Don't stop sending bills to get this government open because that's something we all need to remember. And then come 2020, I know we just had an election, Mm -hmm. but like come 2020, let's all remember the people who were like, no, I don't care. That 800,000, like, I can't remember the number, but that many people were out of work, not getting paychecks, losing housing, losing food. Yeah. Let's let's not forget, too, because I think shutdowns tend to be forgotten. Like, I Mm -hmm. remember the last one, but I don't remember all the key players. I don't always, like, keep that up to date. But, like, we need to just remember that this happened Mm -hmm. and not just continue on with life once the government opens again. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot that the, the first largest shutdown before this one was in the 90s. With mm-hmm. New Gingrich, I had no idea. Like, yeah. as you said, you forget them. Like, yeah. let's, as you, yeah, yeah let's, let's not forget. Let's not forget. <laughs> yes, and we'll vote them out. Exactly. Yeah. Let's get. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let's boot them on out of there. Yeah, yeah. Kentucky. Yeah, I lived in Kentucky for eight years, <laughs> on and off, and uh, it's a mess politically there. Like, Mitch McConnell stays, um, and. I, I would say like the the general sentiment in Kentucky is is like a lot of people are like, how the fuck does this guy keep getting elected? Like we hate him. Mm. Everybody in the state absolutely hates him. Like he can't go out to eat in public because if he is if he is seen in public in a restaurant, people will go up, grab his food, take it outside and throw it in the street. Like it literally oh, happened weird. a few <laughs> weeks ago and people were shouting at him until he had to leave. Wow. And that's scary for a turtle. Because <laughs> then he's got to cross the road. Yeah. He's too slow. <laughs> just, his shell is too soft. Like, just 
Yeah. <laughs> Especially Sorry, if it's like molting <laughs> season. I don't know if that kind of turtle does that. <laughs> it's a new breed, but we can't research it because we don't care. <laughs> and there's no government funding to research right. turtles like him. That's yeah. right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're all very frustrated. Um, so uh, was there anything else y'all wanted to, to talk about? Uh, not really. I mean. Yeah. No, it's been really awesome to be here and to first podcast to talk about all this stuff, both of our work and, mm -hmm. you know, when you're doing your thesis for so long, it's sometimes nice to like talk to other people that aren't the same. Like, yes. Three people that you've been like, have you heard about my sister? Yeah, it's nice not to feel like crazy. Like, am I crazy for doing this? And other people are like, no, this is great. And you're like, okay, okay. I'm not. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like I'm just on a treadmill going nowhere. Oh, yeah. With it. And yeah. So, as Kristen probably knows too, and you've yeah. experienced with your own thesis. Yeah. yeah. I had I had moments of darkness in my thesis yeah. where I had to call friends that were so far removed from what I was doing yep. and just tell them about it and be like, am I crazy? Is this a bad idea? Like... <laughs> Does it even make sense? Can I do this? <laughs> this is bad. And they go, no, no, no. It's 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 fine. It's it's a good idea. You're you're in the right direction. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be done. Yeah, you gotta show yep. you can do it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. A done it thesis done. is the best thesis. Yeah. <laughs> Until your lab burns down. <laughs> wow, oh wow, boy. Wow. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, on another note, regarding the government shutdown, I'm recording tomorrow um, from the day of this recording, so I don't know how the publishing is going to weave out this next week, but uh, the Women in Archaeology podcast is doing an episode exclusively on the shutdown and the consequences thereof, so if you got amped up by our conversation, <laughs> uh, check that out. I'm sure it will be up by around the same time as this. I don't know, sometime Probably. this week. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. <laughs> so hopefully um, it will be a discussion that will come at the end and we won't have to deal with it for too much longer, um, but that will be out there to listen to. So. Nice. Oh, just some general like archaeology things in the community. Um, Portland State holds a first Thursday, so the first Thursday of every month, they hold a really awesome archaeology talk um, with lots of really amazing people who come and talk about the different aspects of archaeology. So if you're someone out there who's like, I wish I had something to do on a Thursday night from four to six. That's <laughs> not whatever you're doing. <laughs> you, you something should, fun and interesting. You should come to the uh, first Thursday. It's a really great. Yeah. Um, and then it's not. I guess it is kind of close now because it's 2019. But the yeah. roadshow. The roadshow. Yeah. June. First weekend in June. <laughs> yeah. I just yep. I can't. I don't have the calendar in front of me. But yeah, it's the first Saturday in June <clears throat> at yep. the Portland State Farmers Market. I know I've heard Chris talk about it, mm -hmm. so it's going to be happening. They're also going to Eastern Oregon this year. They're partnering up in Bend. Oh, and nice. Oh, nice. Yeah, so they got a new cool. partnership, and they're also going out to Harney County again. Oh, Sweet. Nice. Oh, so yeah. three this year. Yeah, so Harney County's on nice. its own now a little bit. They're kind of oh, good. starting nice. to be more of a standalone. Virginia Butler can probably correct me on this, but <laughs> <laughs> who runs it? But they're a little more on their own now, and now we're partnering in Burnt, or in Bend, the other B <laughs> city in Eastern Oregon. Um, and so we'll, they'll be going out 
mid-June for that, and I don't remember the dates exactly, but... Very cool. Yeah, we're so ex- they're expanding. I say we. Yeah. I'm on the planning committee. Yeah. I should know this stuff. But <laughs> we're expanding. Yeah, we're getting out yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Archaeology Roadshow is so cool because it's, it's this event that looks like a farmer's market it's right next to the farmer's market um and you you, like the downtown portland farmer's market has so much foot traffic every weekend like rain or shine no matter Mm -hmm. the time of year and there's a lot of just people from the general public who are just curious about what it is that that wander through and there's so much uh like diversity of perspectives in the people Mm -hmm. that come through and like i was there uh this past summer and just talk to people from all walks of life, all ages, who were just super amped that uh, it was there and they got to talk about archaeology. And um, like both of you have said in, in your own research, there's so much like there's a wealth of knowledge about local archaeology in, mm-hmm. in the you know public around here. And it was really cool to hear those kinds of stories uh, just from mm-hmm. people coming around. Uh, so, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, NWAC yes. is in Kennewick, Washington, the uh, third or fourth week of March. I think I... it's the 20th or 19th through the 23rd. Yeah. I just know this because it's over my birthday. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great birthday present. <laughs> just ask every archaeologist there to buy a beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's my birthday. It's my birthday. <laughs> we'll give you a name tag. It's like really big. Like the Disneyland. Like, <laughs> happy birthday. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, yeah, I think it's the 19th through the 23rd. Mm-hmm. Nice. Cool. And then final plug, uh, the, uh, so it's in Eugene. Yes. It's in Eugene. Rick Pettigrew, um, the archeology span channel. Yes. Heritage conference. Yeah. It's like a cultural heritage conference. It's like a heritage film festival. Yes. And conference. Yeah. It's over a weekend, um, in Eugene, Oregon. In May, I yes. believe it's the, the the weekend of the fifth or sixth of May. So we're doing um, a podcast symposium and talking about outreach into the public and how we um, do and wish to access the public, uh, our publics. Um, and there are it's a huge international event that actually encompasses. Any sort of archaeology mm-hmm. media internationally, from, and it's the largest in the world. So that's kind of a cool tidbit. So anyone uh, that is in Oregon or on the West Coast or anywhere really that is interested in um, public outreach, um, archaeology and heritage, and how you can be more involved, that is a great place to be and make contacts for those uh, future goals of yours. Mm-hmm. So, Awesome. Nice. Cool. Um, So one last thing is uh, I like to close the episode out with a way for listeners to reach out to either of you if uh, you want people to reach out to you. So uh, where can folks find you online? Um, So when I saw the the, like notes for the podcast, I was like, oh, crap, I really don't have an online presence that people can contact me through. Um, But I you can contact me through email. Um, the best one would be Tia, T-I-A-R dot Cody, C-O-D-Y at gmail.com. Um, just let me know that you heard me through the podcast so I don't think you're a creeper. Um, <laughs> uh, Facebook direct messaging, just Tia Cody. Um, again, just let me know where you heard me. Um, also, I will be presenting at a couple open to the public conferences. 
pretty sure. Um, there's a GIS in Action conference at Portland State that nice. I will be going to um, and presenting my thesis work. And then there is, um, for the life of me, I can't remember it right now, um, but the University of Portland is putting on a symposium conference type thing uh, that's also happening at Portland State. Um, and I will be presenting my thesis research thesis research there as well um also if you the oregon heritage fellowship website uh i was a recipient of that in 2017 and a sort of version of my thesis work is published there so if you want to read a little bit more about what i did and get more into the boring nitty-gritty of my methods uh that's there as well and feel free to uh, contact me nice and how about you katie um well i have a website uh, the ARC database, pdx.wordpress.com. So just put that in reverse, rewind, play it again. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also have a special email if you want to email me with any information. And it's also ARC database, pdx at gmail.com. I have to remember it myself. But if you can't remember that one, there's an easy one. It's Tipton, T-I-P-T-O-N at pdx.edu that's my personal school email and if you just say database in the subject line i'll know also you're not a creeper (laughs) (laughs) and want to talk database um but visit the website first and uh, there's a contact uh page in there too so read that first very cool and uh for anybody listening on a like phone or device like that um, there's probably show notes somewhere on your device, uh, and you can click on these links on your phone. So start clicking buttons and, and figure out where it is. Um, if you're listening on SoundCloud, which is where uh, these episodes are hosted, uh, it's just in the show notes right below the, the little thing that's that's playing with the little sound wave looking thing. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> cool. Uh, we're gonna stop there. Thanks for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. All of your contributions are incredibly appreciated. And uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again. And please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, you can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, the blog is godigahole.com. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole.com.